This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am. Not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at Serial underscore Killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Richard Cottingham. Richard Cottingham was born on November 25, 1946 in the Bronx, New York. So let's get into some history for that time. In 1946, the world was finally at the end of World War II and people expected life to get better. They had endured, of course, the war, but also the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, and many, many other hardships all over the world. The General Assembly of the United Nations held its very first meeting. The 51 original members met at the Westminster Central Hall in London, England. They adopted their first resolution, which would deal with the new issues arising from atomic energy and nuclear weapons. UNICEF, or the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, was also established in 1946. It was created by the General Assembly of the UN in an effort to provide help and services to children living in war-torn or troubled countries. The very first Cannes Film Festival was held in the French Riviera. It was created as a place for up-and-coming films from around the world to be previewed and critiqued. The festival has since evolved into this more kind of commercial thing, but it is still thought of as a prestigious social gathering for the elite of the film industry. In China, 30 million people were close to dying from starvation this year during the ongoing Great Chinese Famine. This was caused by a few factors such as politics and natural disasters like droughts and so on. But on a happier note, the first bikinis would go on sale in Paris. Tupperware becomes available in department and hardware stores. Dean Martin's musical career begins as well as B.B. King's. 
Some other notable people born in 1946 were Ted Bundy and Peter Sutcliffe, both serial killers. Freddie Mercury, Dolly Parton, Steven Spielberg, Sylvester Stallone, Cher, Donald Trump, George W. Bush, Susan Sarandon, and Barry Gibb. So that was the atmosphere that Richard was born into. He was born the first of three children. His father, William, was described as a, quote, quiet, almost brooding career man, unquote, who worked for MetLife Insurance, an insurance company. And his mother, Anna, was a homemaker, and they were considered a middle-class Catholic family. There was an incident, according to Richard, when he was four years old, that he was hit by a car and suffered some damage to his frontal lobe, and you know we'll get into that. In 1958, when Richard was 12 years old, the family moved to Rivervale, New Jersey, which is just on the other side of the Hudson and a bit north of New York City. Richard was a shy child and struggled to make friends at his new school. He began seventh grade at St. Andrew's School, which is a private Catholic school. And because he had kind of poor vision, he was not really good at sports, and he felt that that isolated him even more. He later said that the girls actually really liked him, and he said he was admittedly a, quote, manipulative control freak, unquote. He mainly stayed home where he took an interest in homing pigeons and then tinkered around the house and in the yard with his mother. But he also started to develop an obsession with bondage pornography. But everything changed when he entered Pasac Valley High School. He made friends, he joined the track team. Richard really enjoyed running as it gave him time alone. Some of the other runners on his team remarked that sometimes he didn't bother to show up to practice and that he definitely didn't join in with the crowd. Richard was described as having a, quote, wise guy attitude and wasn't crazy about authority. Another classmate stated that when he spoke about women, it was often in a negative way. Richard often bragged about being fond of rather larger-breasted women. Now, in high school, he was neither popular or unpopular. He was firmly in the middle due to him being in track. He was sort of a, a bridge between the, quote, hoods and the jocks. The people in the neighborhood who watched Richard growing up said that his mother was completely devoted to him, and until he got older, he was always right there with her. Now, she was described as domineering, possessive, and overprotective. When he was alone, he would read those monthly magazines that would show women tied up and in danger. These mystery, adventure, or detective magazines were quite popular then. Another notable man who enjoyed these was Ted Bundy, and there were many, many more. These periodicals were a massive, overwhelming, sadistic stream of rape culture, 
sold in mainstream media places and lapped up by sick minds with a need or a compulsion for control, revenge, torture, rape, and killing. In 1964, he graduated from high school with satisfactory but not exemplary grades, and he had no inclination to go to college. And folks, that's literally his entire childhood. There's just not a whole lot to go on, but let's see what we can find. Now, I'm sad to say I couldn't find any background information on his parents. I could find their names and occupations, and that's really it. There are no known issues with any abuse or neglect within Richard's upbringing. Zero stories of alcohol abuse or discipline being taken entirely too far. You know, none of that. Richard's early years and family were just average middle class people, but a very idyllic childhood. The only thing Richard has ever even stated might have been a negative was when he was uprooted from his friends and the school in the Bronx and had to start school in the town in New Jersey where they moved. And that's it. Now, it's not to say that having to move and change schools isn't difficult, because it is. I had to do that a few times, so I understand that completely. Sources say he had, you know, a little trouble making friends in junior high when he started at the new school and spent the majority of his time with his pigeon hobby or busying himself following his mother around while she tended things in and around the house. And again, there's nothing wrong with children being close to their mothers, but if you read in between the lines of how their relationship was described, you get the sense that it might have been too much, so to speak. When you start throwing words around like possessive, dominating, overprotective, well, then you begin to think of other famous serial killers who had mothers that kind of fit those descriptions. We think of men like Edmund Kemper, Ed Gein, and even just a touch Jeffrey Dahmer, and so on. We know that overly controlling parents cause their children lifelong psychological damage. Children who have controlling parents are at a higher risk for certain mental health problems, such as depression and anxiety. These children also show that they are less likely to be effective at controlling their own emotions and impulses. Now, we often see people who grow up to be serial killers who also had domineering mothers often begin to take their frustrations out on animals. Except Richard didn't do that. He thoroughly enjoyed his homing pigeons, and if one died, he would be quite upset. Instead, he seemed to have turned his growing anger at girls. Now, he admitted himself that he was a manipulative control freak, and he said he did have girls that liked him, but he didn't treat them very well. Some of his male friends even stated he didn't talk very good about girls often, describing them as almost objects. And then we have those true crime and detective magazines that were so popular among a notable few budding serial killers from those times. The covers with the scantily clad women glistening with sweat, you know, 
terror on their faces as they're tied up and being held by a man with a knife to their throats. Magazines that talked about, quote, lusting night stalker smashed Susanna's skull and, quote, slashed corpses and shredded bras marked his trail, sex freak on the prowl, and so on and so on. Now, of course, we all know that it is perfectly normal for young people on the cusp of, during, and after puberty to be curious about sex and how it all works. But Richard became obsessed with these magazines. He said he used to shoplift a lot, and I'm making an assumption that he was stealing these magazines because I don't know how else he would have been getting them. So in summation, there was no history of bullying suffered by him or from him. If you subscribe to the McDonald triad, he had no history of bedwetting far past what is usual, no fire starting, and no animal torture or abuse. Again, no abuse or neglect from either of his parents that has been reported or observed. Other than an overbearing mother, there's nothing except that head injury when he was four that supposedly damaged his frontal lobe. Now, we've discussed at length how dangerous it can be to damage the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is pretty large, and it's all kind of behind our foreheads in the front, right? So, long story short, it is the part of the brain responsible for the ability to decide between good and bad choices, as well as recognize the consequences of different actions. When there is damage to that area, the person's ability to make good choices and recognize consequences are often impaired. This damage can cause an increase in irritability, changes in mood, and an inability to regulate their own behavior. There could be deficits in executive functioning, so like being able to anticipate outcomes, choosing appropriate goals, planning, initiation, sequencing, you know, things come before and after others, monitoring to detect own errors like your own self errors, self-correction and impulse control. So in other words, it's not good. So let's get back into his story. Now, after high school, he went to work with his father for Metropolitan Life Insurance Company or MetLife in Manhattan, New York. There, he worked as a computer console operator. But keep in mind, in the mid-60s, you've got to understand that computers looked more like those really big servers you see today. A huge computer back then had memory tape reels that had to be changed and observed to make sure that they were running smoothly. So Richard actually didn't do any programming. His job was just more maintaining the machines. And to give you some perspective, one of the refrigerator-sized computers had a whopping 17 megabyte memory. I know. Calm down. But, you know, it was honest work, and he brought home a decent paycheck for the times. But a year and a half later, Richard took a job with his employer's competition, Blue Cross Blue Shield, which actually disappointed his father greatly. It created a bit of a rift. 
Father and son just didn't really get along very well after that, so Richard moved out of the family home and into his own place in Little Ferry, New Jersey. Then quickly after, his father retired and his parents moved from New Jersey down to Florida. So at this point, Richard was making about 25000 a year, which would be roughly equal to 120000 a year today. So in New York City, that might not be quite enough, but in the suburbs of New Jersey, not too bad. Other than the little bit of tension between himself and his father, life seemed to be going pretty good. He had a great job, it was stable, making good money, he was independent. So not long after his parents moved away, for whatever reason, Richard would take his first victim. In October of 1967, 29-year-old Nancy Vogel told her husband and friends that she was going to go play bingo at her local church, but she first stopped at a shopping mall. Richard saw her, abducted her, and took her to a field where he stripped her, he tied her up, and he strangled her. Her nude body was left in her car to be discovered, the car abandoned near a house on a vacant road. The car was in full view of two girls that lived in the house. They thought it was a mannequin at first, but realized it wasn't, and the police were contacted. Strangely enough, her clothes had been neatly folded underneath her, and her hands had been tied in front of her with a thin nylon cord. She had definite bruising on her face. Now, sources differ, but she was either strangled with a cord or with a necktie, and the police believed that she had been murdered in that car three days prior to her discovery. It didn't specifically say whether or not he raped Nancy, but it was known that he knew who she was through their shared Catholic church. Richard was at this point 21 years old. A year later, Richard was pulled over by the police in New York City. He was arrested, charged, and convicted of driving while intoxicated because he had literally driven up on the sidewalk. He served 10 days in jail and he had to pay $50 in fines. In May of 1970, Richard, 23 now, married Janet and they proceeded to have three children together. The couple moved into some apartments called Ledgewood Terrace in Little Ferry, New Jersey. Now, there are a handful of murders that occurred after Nancy's that they're pretty sure are Richard's due to the similarities. But regardless, once he was married and he began to have children, the murdering slowed at least for a bit. He was a working family man. But that mask of normalcy was thin at best. In August of 1972, Richard was arrested and convicted of shoplifting in New Jersey, and he was ordered to pay a $50 fine. The next year, he was accused of severely beating, biting, raping, sodomizing, and stealing from a 17-year-old prostitute. He was charged, but the case was ultimately dismissed because the girl didn't show up to court. 
However, he was described as a regular with the New York City prostitutes. And yet, in his private life, he became a very valued employee for Blue Cross Blue Shield. And they told him that he could, you know, choose whatever shift he wanted to work. So, of course, he chose second shift from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. This left him time to have, quote, nooners with prostitutes before he went to work or after when his wife and his children would already be fast asleep and not notice his absence. At times, he didn't even bother to come home. He would just tell his wife that he was working overtime and he was just going to stay in New York. That turned into him driving into the city, even on the weekends when he was off work. In 1974, the now 28-year-old Richard yet again sexually assaulted a 19-year-old prostitute, and yet again he was arrested, except the victim didn't show up to court and the charges were dropped again. So at this point, he was kind of beginning to feel untouchable. But any level of anonymity was gone. He was on the police's radar. The next year, he moved his family into a colonial-style house in Lodi, New Jersey. Their neighbors would later state that the family was quiet and mostly kept to themselves. But in this largely Italian community, at least at that time, that wasn't unheard of. The family members themselves seemed to get along very well, and it was noted that Richard doted on and played with his children. But behind closed doors, Richard found that he was just um, unable to perform with his wife. Janet actually later said that after she gave birth to their third and final child, Richard just refused to be intimate with her, period. She said he had become notably withdrawn, you know, always lost in his thoughts. He then decided to take for himself a room in the home's basement for his, quote, study, and he kept the door to that room locked at all times. Now, as any normal spouse would be, Janet, of course, was curious as to what in the hell he had locked up in that room. She finally was able to gain entry, and what she found shocked and scared her to her core. Inside, she found Richard's trophy room. There was fake jewelry, costume jewelry, women's clothing, purses, women's shoes, all these different sets of keys, straps and bondage collars, among other things. Horrified, she decided to check the trunk of his car, and there she found, like a toupee, a man's wig, a bottle of scotch, a strap that was obviously used as a gag, arm restraints, and handcuffs. And as horrified as she was, she turned a blind eye and said nothing, tried to be that good and faithful Catholic wife. In December of 1977, Richard kidnapped young nurse Marianne Carr from the apartment complex that he had previously lived in. She was taken to a hotel. She was later found with her hands and feet tied and had been beaten savagely, then strangled to death. And strangely, Richard, though pretty well respected by his co-workers, 
was stealing their keys and making copies so that, you know, he could later let himself into their homes or apartments and steal from them. Richard also bragged about his life away from his wife. One co-worker said, quote, He was very upfront about it, bragging about prostitutes, S&M, gambling, all the vices that he had, he bragged about. He liked the slave thing, the handcuffs. He was strange. He'd talk about S&M clubs he'd go to, talked about prostitutes. He used to talk about how he could lure prostitutes out of Manhattan, and he always had two pocketful of cash, thousands of dollars. He would show prostitutes cash and then take them to New Jersey, unquote. Richard also bragged about tricking prostitutes out of their money that he owed them once they had performed their services by sneaking out of the hotel room. Another common observation about Richard was that he absolutely could not sit still. He was one of those people that was always shaking at least one of his legs, if not both of them, for hours. He would, he would do this during an entire work shift. If he wasn't shaking his feet or his legs, he would kind of shake his back, or that's how it was described. Then in 1977, Richard began a relationship with Barbara Lucas, who was a nurse. They met at a bar and instantly hit it off. Barbara described him as a loving and attentive boyfriend and that he didn't ask her to do more hardcore sex acts. And in fact, she said it became rather routine and predictable. Barbara did say that Richard had a fondness for reading books about stalking and kidnapping as well as female bondage and murder. Richard also took Barbara to the very same motels that he was taking many of his victims. And Richard also took on another mistress, another nurse named Jean Connolly. So in 1978, Richard kidnapped Karen Schilt in New York City. He drugged her, he sexually assaulted her, strangled her, and then dumped her body in a sewer at his old apartment complex in Little Ferry, New Jersey. One month after Karen's murder, Richard picked up a pregnant prostitute named Susan Geiger. He drugged her, beat and raped her, then left her in his usual motel in a room in New Jersey. In 1979, his wife, Janet, was, you know, well aware of her husband's cheating and she filed for divorce. And not only did she know about his cheating, she found out that he had actually been regularly hanging out in gay bars as well. Later that year, Richard would take the lives of two more women. Get this. So in December of 1979, firemen responded to a fire in a motel near Times Square. When the firemen arrived, they forced their way into the motel room to put the fire out. So, you know, picture this, it's all smoky and kind of hard to see. When they got into the room, they saw two bodies laying on the bed. One fireman stated that he attempted to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, only to find that the body was missing its head. Both women had had their hands removed, their heads removed, 
and what was left of the bodies were mutilated. The missing body parts were actually never found. Richard had doused the bodies with lighter fluid and then set them on fire. One was identified as a Kuwait immigrant by the name of Dita Gudarzi. She was 22 years old and she was a known prostitute. They were not able to identify the other woman. Another murder was linked to that one almost immediately. Helen Sykes, a teenage prostitute, had gone missing from Times Square just before. When she was found, her head was only still attached by a very thin piece of skin. Both of her legs had been removed and were found a whole ass city block away. By May of 1980, multiple female bodies had been found, usually naked, beaten severely, sometimes bleeding from a breast, stabbed, mutilated, strangled, and bodies either dumped in parking lots or usually left in motels in New York, including being stuffed under the beds for housekeeping to find. He then earned his names quote, Times Square Ripper, or the, quote, Torso Killer. Then on May 22, 1980, Richard saw 18-year-old prostitute Leslie O'Dell, who was working on the corner of Lexington Avenue and 25th Street. They agreed that she would have sex with him for $100. They then, in the wee hours of the morning, checked into the same motel he had just left his last victim in. Leslie rolled onto her stomach on the bed because Richard offered to give her a massage. He then straddled her. He put a knife to her throat and handcuffed her wrists. And then the torture began. He was biting her on her body and he nearly bit off one of her nipples. She screamed in pain and terror, to which he told her, quote, You have to take it. The other girls did and you have to take it too. You're a whore and you have to be punished, unquote. Though he had tried to muffle her screams, she was still loud enough that hotel staff called the police. Keep in mind, they were still freaked out because they had literally just found his previous victim not long before. Thankfully, Richard was caught and arrested at the scene and Leslie survived. So as they do, the authorities checked his belongings and they found handcuffs, a leather gag, two slave collars, a switchblade, replica pistols, and a large amount of prescription pills. He was charged with kidnapping, attempted murder, aggravated assault, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, aggravated assault while armed rape, aggravated sexual assault while armed sodomy, possession of a weapon, possession of dangerous controlled substances, and those substances, by the way, were different kinds of barbiturates, and then he also had Valium. They also searched his house, where they found his trophy room in the basement. Three surviving victims were able to pick him out of a lineup. So, during his trial, he testified in his own defense, saying he was fascinated with bondage since he was a child, 
but totally denied that he was into hurting any other people. He denied all knowledge of any of his victims other than Leslie, whom he had obviously been caught with. While in jail during his trial, he tried to commit suicide by drinking six ounces of a liquid antidepressant that was in his cell, but that was not successful. He was ultimately sentenced to 197 years in prison for the murders and additional years for kidnappings. Though they can only link him to so many murders, Richard bragged that he had killed over 100 women and experts agree that that could very well be an accurate number. To this day, they are still linking him to cases. He attempted suicide yet again when he tried to cut his wrist open in front of jurors during a later trial. He attempted to escape prison, but he was quickly recaptured. And as far as I could see, he is still alive and in prison. So, Richard has been described as one of the most sadistic American serial killers. He subjected most of his victims to endless hours of torture. He would bite, poke, slice, stab, and bind them, all while conscious. He mutilated them while they were awake to experience it. These poor women suffered horrendously during all of this before he finally killed them. He spoke during his trial of his rather sophisticated history of ever-evolving sadistic fantasies. Experts believe that it was the true detective magazines that were so easily accessible back in those days that kind of helped flesh out the dark fantasies of the budding serial killers like Richard and again Ted Bundy and even Dennis Rader. They provided strong erotic imagery of tied up helpless females for young pre- or pubescent boys to read and fantasize over, and they developed harmful paraphilias. Richard was no exception, and he reveled in feeding his inner depravity. Now, if you pair this with the head injury he suffered as a small child, you get a pretty accurate picture of perhaps one of the pieces to why he became a serial killer. Another notable serial killer who suffered a head injury resulting in possible frontal lobe issues while quite young was Alexander Pachushkin, who I have done a previous podcast on as well as a live podcast. Paired with becoming obsessed with the crime and detective magazines depicting violence toward women and possibly a drop of a domineering mother in the background and the recipe, well, it's nearly complete. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or a YouTube comment on my channel under the same name as this podcast. I have a Patreon if you're interested in supporting the podcast. And as always, thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate every one of you more than you know. Have a great day.